So as Bates said, this morning we, we're launching Philippians. We want to do an introduction this morning. So I'm resisting my natural urge to apply, 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 application, application. And I really want to give us the context of the book. I want to look at the introduction of the book. And I want to set us up for the weeks to come as we journey through this book in Philippians. And then a real, <clears throat> a real desire from the leadership in this church is that We learn increasingly how to feed ourselves. And so a Sunday morning is wonderful, and I encourage you to keep coming your whole life. You want to be in a a community like this. But we also want to be growing you in discipleship. And one of the key ways that we can help grow you in discipleship, yes, one-on-one coffees and all of that, but happens right here on a Sunday morning as we show you and guide you in how to read the Word of God for yourself. How to better be equipped to understand and approach the Word of God. So how do you read a book when you come to it? Do you just kind of flip and go, oh, that's my verse for today, and kind of put your finger in or do this? Or are you going through books systematically? That's some of the stuff we want to talk about and train you in. So we're hoping that the, the way that we do this series will help with that. So one the first way to, to kind of start helpfully is to consider, well, what was the context of the time? What's going on when Paul is actually writing this letter? And we'll get to who he writes it to and whatnot just now. But it's, it's the city that this letter is written to is a city called Philippi. All right? And that is not a, it shouldn't be a surprise with the name Philippians. And it's a city in Macedonia, which is a province. If you guys will throw up the map for me, it's over there. You can see Philippi, which is today is uh, eastern, eastern Greece, is up there. And so that's where it is today, and it's named, the city's named after Alexander the Great's father, who was Philip, Philip II, and he conquered this city, so it was there for hundreds of years before, and he renamed it Philippi, but then it had like quite a change in, in, in BC 31, so around about the time that Christ was on the cross, somewhere around there, I think about 33 BC, it had a significant change, and they began to send Roman retired generals into Philippi to make to Romanize this town or this city. And so it became a kind of Roman, um, what do you call it, like a, a city or a, whatever, like a Roman colony is the word I'm looking for. And what was it like to live there is another good question. Well, due to this, this influx of retired Roman soldiers, the Macedonian natives and the Greek natives who had been there for a long time actually became quite impoverished. So most of the land was gifted to these Roman generals, these retired generals coming in. And so they became extremely impoverished. And Paul is writing to them 20, well not writing to them, he goes there for the first time 20 years after this date. So he's there around 50 BC. So about 19, 20 years after it's been Romanized. And at that point, the city would have been incredibly Roman already. The culture was Roman. The power dynamics were Roman. The the civil kind of law stuff was, was Roman. And there would have been a relatively small number of people, the elites, holding all the power, holding most of the wealth and most of the prosperity in this town of Philippi. And then the church there that we're going to read about just now, would have been almost entirely non-Jewish. You'll see in the text when we read in Acts 16 just now that Paul, you know Paul's normal modus operandi, what does he do when he gets to a town? What does he do? He looks for a synagogue. Every single time Paul goes and looks for a synagogue, he finds a synagogue, he speaks to the Jewish people. This town has no synagogue. That's normally indicative of the fact that there were less than 10 Jewish men in a town. When there were 10 men, they could form a council. When they could form a council, they built a synagogue. So the fact that there's none sends Paul down to the river going to look for believers, but we'll read that in a moment. How did this fit into Paul's life? So if you read Acts, 
Remember Acts, sometimes we read Acts and think, well, that's it. And then Philippians is kind of a second thing and, and Colossians is a second thing. No, it's happening concurrently. So Acts is telling you where Philippians fits in. So when Paul stops over in Acts and it speaks about him going into Philippi, oh, that's Philippians. When he stops in Colossians, in, in Colossia, that's Colossians and all the rest of them, Thessalonica and, and Thessalonians. So if you'll throw up the next timeline for me, this is kind of a journey, a, qu- a very quick summary of Paul's journey. So he goes on his first missionary journey around AD 46, 47, and then it's on his second journey in AD 50 that Paul first visits Philippi. And it's quite unique circumstances. We're going to read about them in Acts 16, quite a God intervention that Paul even goes there at all. But he ends up there in AD 50, and then six years later, all right, I just want you to log that for now. Six years between Paul's first visit and Paul's second visit, he goes to Philippi again. And then the next year after that, he's arrested in Jerusalem, held in, held in house arrest for probably two years or so. Remember, he appeals to Caesar, if you remember the end of Acts. He appeals to Caesar, and he's then sent to Rome, where historians then record that after about two years in prison there, he was executed by beheading. So that's kind of the journey of of Paul's life, and we'll dip in on that second missionary journey this morning. So turn with me, if you would, not to Philippians yet, but to Acts chapter 16. And this church that we're speaking about this morning was the very first church in Eastern Europe. So there was no Christian witness at all in the whole of Eastern Europe until this moment that we're going to read about in Acts chapter 16. As you're turning there, it's also helpful to know who's on the journey. Well, obviously Paul is on this journey as well as Silas. Those are the two that we know for sure. It looks like Timothy joined them at some point, but we're not quite sure where. And there's a whole bunch of journeys between Philippi and Rome where Paul is in prison that you can read in the book of Philippians. You'll see all these different journeys taking place. All right, are you there with me? Acts 16. I'm taking that as a yes. Thanks for your enthusiasm. There we go. So Paul and Silas, it says just before the section we're going to read, it says that the Holy Spirit barred them from going to Asia. I love how the Bible just like throws out a line. It's like, I'd love to know how. I'd love to know what he did or how he said it. But anyway, the Holy Spirit bars them from going to Asia. So now they're kind of in limbo and they're not sure where they're going to go. Paul falls asleep. Blessings to you, Christelle, and has an incredible vision of a man from Macedonia. So obviously there was some kind of type of clothing that they wore or something that identified him as a man from Macedonia. And in this vision, this man is pleading with Paul, come over to Macedonia, come over to Macedonia, and he's urging him. So Paul wakes up the next morning, absolutely sure, God's spoken to him, he knows where he's going, and so they get on a boat or on foot, whatever it is they're doing, and they head off to Macedonia, to Philippi. And so they end up in this city, which is called, in the text, it's called a leading city of the district. And they go to the river, like I said, to look for any kind of gathering of people who would be God followers or God fearing people. In the absence of a synagogue, they would normally go and meet down by the river, like the good song says. So we're going to read in verse 14. So he's speaking to a group of women, and one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Tyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Seller of purple goods is a luxury item, indicates, along with the fact that you'll see in a moment that she had a household, that she was a woman of some means, so of some wealth. 
but she was already a worshipper of God. And most theologians will say, or historians will say, that she wasn't actually Jewish, but rather someone who had converted to, to Judaism elsewhere and come into Philippi and was now practicing the, Ju- the Judas, the Judaist, whatever it is, practices. All these words. <laughs> the Lord opened her heart. Words, words. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, in other words, if you consider this conversion that I've just had, if you consider it sincere, come, and, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So there is the very first convert in Eastern Europe. The woman called Lydia. A tiny little sidebar. I want to just say to our woman, you guys underestimate your place. Not just in scripture, although I think that's a massive part of where it's underestimated, but in God's flow and the use that God has done through the ages in the church. It's incredible that in the story, the two most prominent or the first two prominent people are both women. We'll read the next section. That's just a little sidebar. So that's the first person into the kingdom of, of Christ in Philippi and her household come with her. And then verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, so this is another day, they're going down to the river again. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. All right, so she's a demon-possessed woman. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Well, this leads to a series of events where these guys had this cash cow, this woman who could tell people's fortunes and people were paying for it. Suddenly Paul's cast out this demon. She can't do it anymore. These men are absolutely incensed. They drag them before the council and they, before the law and then they create a riot and eventually Paul and Silas are publicly beaten with rods. The text says many times they absolutely thrashed. They, they stripped naked and then they thrown into, that was before they got, that was the wrong way around. So they stripped naked. Then they smacked with rods then they get thrown into prison and they give the jailer special command to make sure they are secure so they put them in the inside of the prison and they shackle them they chain them to the walls and the floor so i'm not going to read that section for you you can go and read it but what happens is that paul and silas many of you would remember this from your sunday school teachings paul and silas were worshiping around midnight man that's another whole sermon on its own beaten, thrashed, thrown in prison and singing songs. And it says the other prisoners were listening to them. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of scripture. And God brings this incredible earthquake. All the bonds fall off these guys, including the other prisoners. Paul and Silas somehow managed to keep all the prisoners within the jail. And this jailer comes and he's about to kill himself. In those days it was a life for a life. So he would have been executed for losing the prisoners. It says he drew his sword and was about to fall upon his sword. And Paul shouts out, and we'll, we'll read here. Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he uses that word saved, I love that it's not like the way we use it. You, know, you want to be saved? You want to be saved? You know, like Christianese? He's like saying, like, I'm about to be destroyed. What do I do to be saved? Like, I'm drowning. Help me. It's beautiful. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour. Remember, it was midnight when this thing started. So now we what? One, two in the morning after he's been explaining what not. The same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he, bapt- and he was baptized at once. Just like Lydia. I'm so excited to see a spat of baptisms, water baptisms beginning to happen. Who was baptized on, on student camp? There were a few of you guys, eh? One there, Beth. Who else was? Yeah, over there. And there's a whole bunch of guys. That, I think we've had like 10 or so baptisms in the last two months. It's just wonderful. I want to encourage you, if you haven't been water baptized, come and speak to us. We want to walk you through. Lynn's is our, is our, next, is our next one in a freezing cold pool. I think you're going to be the first in, in my pool. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. There's a common theme when we get to Philippians. You'll see the word rejoice over and over again. But this man has just come to incredible salvation. And he's so thankful and he's rejoicing. So the next day... The rulers of the city decide it's time to set Paul and Silas free. Um, But Paul now makes a big stink because he's a Roman citizen, which he didn't tell them up front. But what that means is that it was illegal for him to be beaten without trial. So they they had done something to a Roman citizen which could have caused them a huge amount of trouble. And so Paul... Uh, says, no, we're not just leaving. They must come and speak to us. So the people come, verse 39, and apologize to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, so some other people who had come to know Christ in their time there, they encouraged them and departed. Turn with me while we talk through that little section. Turn with me to Philippians and we'll speak about that in a moment. But friends, this is, this is the incredibly unlikely beginning of the Philippi church. You take a woman of some wealth with her household, a demon-possessed woman who gets set free, and a jailer and their family... This, this motley crew, and Paul then birth, this church is birthed in, in persecution. And he's kicked out after what looks like just a few short weeks in Philippi. Maybe, maybe a couple of months. He's kicked out. And the odds were stacked up against these people right from the beginning. And this, this for me is one of the most incredible valid, validating points of Christ. And, and what we believe of Christianity. And, and why we believe it. I mean, if you just, just logic this for a moment. Get the logic around this, right? What, what else would have stuck? What else could you have gone in there and taught those people? You know, we, we sometimes Christianity, people say, well, it was taught as a lie, like a deliberate lie. Or it was as taught as some kind of pseudo-religion to mix up the, the Judaism. What is that word? <laughs> Jewish people. There, we'll just say Jewish people, yes. Jewish religion. <laughs> Or, or like maybe they were doing it for some gain, like some personal, some personal gain. Can you think of anything else that would have been proclaimed for such a short amount of time? Then you, then you add in a nice good dollop of persecution. So like real objection to what you're bringing and the faith that you're bringing. Then you add in the fact these guys had no New Testament. 
They didn't have like a New Testament to turn to, to find out more about Jesus. Everything was just this word of mouth that Paul and Silas had managed to give them over a few weeks or at, at best a few months. They had no leaders. They had very few Jews who were familiar with the Old Testament. They had no global leadership summit. They had no gospel coalition podcasts. They had no TBN, no God TV. They had nothing. So now imagine doing that and then just leaving them for six years. Now tell me what you expect to find when you come back. You expect to find nothing. Not a hint, right? And yet we find this incredible, powerful church that Paul speaks about in his letter in Philippians. If this was not God, so, ah, for me this has always been one of the most powerful indicators of the, of the authenticity of what we believe. It's a great proof for me that, that God's sustaining hand has sustained the spread of the gospel and has sustained the, the, the resilience of the gospel through generations and thousands of years. Through every culture, it's the most incredible thing, this gospel that we carry. And it takes my mind immediately to Psalm 127, which speaks, it's, it's a very personal verse for me as we trying to, as we trying to lead and God has graced us to lead in this environment. You know, often I go back to Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. If this was not a God thing, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Unless God himself was doing this work in Philippi, it would have been in vain, just as it is for us new gen today. So that's talking about the city of Philippi. We're asking where, the, where Paul fits into the story. How does it fit into the journey of Acts? Then we're asking, well, what was it like as it began? Or how, how, did, it, how did it begin? And now we want to turn to the book of Philippians itself. And just answer a few questions around that. Well, it's the, it's the sixth of Paul's letters. So he's written five previous letters as best as we can date them. Out of 27 New Testament books, Paul is accredited with 13 of them. Fairly reliably, we agree that he's, he's done 13. There may have been more. Nine of these books, nine of his 13 are letters to local churches, like this one that we're going to read in Philippians. And this letter, Philippians, is actually written for a very practical reason. They had sent a whole bunch of of gifts and help to Paul, and Paul is writing a letter back, basically saying thank you, and a whole lot more. So and what is the situation for people in Philippi? I've already spoken about the kind of general hardness of of the economy and the Roman oppression and all of this that was going on in, in the city. But then Philippians gives us a window into the more specifics of what was happening to the Christians in Philippi. And you can read this, you can jot these down, and you can, you can, I'm not going to go and read them now. But Philippians 1.28 speaks about the persecution that the believers were facing for their faith, not just for being idiots. That's not persecution. If you're an idiot and you get persecuted, you deserve that. That was just for free. Other teachers are, are trying to trouble Paul and his, and his teaching. You see that in 1.17. So they're bringing in some kind of other weird teachings their friend, get his name, Epaphroditus, if you've got a kid coming, it's a good one. <laughs> he had gone to visit Paul in prison, but along the way had, be- had got incredibly ill to the point of death. So they're they facing losing, potentially someone who's journeyed. Do you know how far this journey was to Rome, incidentally? 
So Philippi to Rome, and we think, okay, the guy's gone on a journey to take like some baked bean cans or something. It's 2,000 kilometers is, is the estimate of the route that he would have taken. 2,000 kilometers on foot. That's Durban, eh? That's going to Durbs. <laughs> they, the best estimates, the best estimates, it would have taken him at least six weeks, but more likely it would have taken him three to five months on that journey, taking some stuff to, to Paul. So it was definitely non-perishable. And then the other thing these guys are facing is that false teachers were trying to submit these Gentile believers. We're trying to make them believe that they had to now be circumcised and follow all the Jewish laws and, and whatnot. And then Paul, their first teacher, is in prison miles and miles, miles away. And in the middle of this, Paul, who incidentally has a list about three times as long about what's going wrong in his life, it's way worse than the Philippians. But he tells them to rejoice. Why? He says, because God's in control. That's one of the main messages in Philippians. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. Why? Because God's in control. Because God's in control. He's at work. The book of Philippians is one of Paul's most encouraging letters. He commends the Philippians for their earnest work. He tells them how much he longs to see them. There's this warning in there. He's warning them about the dangers they're going to face, the trials they're going to face. He coaches them on dealing with hard times and he provides examples from his own life, from other Christians' lives, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And no matter what, he says the good news of Jesus is advancing. No matter what we face, the good news of Jesus is advancing. And then he says this beautiful thing. He says, God will complete what he began. Which I was talking about just now, that this this crazy start to this church in Philippi. And Paul writes encouragingly to them and says, six years later, he says, God will complete what he began. When I say that it's an encouraging reason, and it's an encouraging epistle, and that there's reason to rejoice, what I mean is that this book of the Bible, Philippians, focuses on joy like no other book of the Bible. Joy, or the word rejoice, the Hebrew word there is, is, is 16 times found in four chapters. That book, it's, it's the most frequent appearing of the word joy. Remarkably, because this is also a book which deals with some of the most severe suffering and pain in the New Testament. So these two things exist right alongside each other. Kate on our wall above our bed has, has got a quote by Tim Keller. And it reminded me of this when I was preparing it's remarkable. Do you have that quote? It is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for changes in their circumstances. Just let that settle in. So not once is Paul saying, I ask God to take it away from you. Not once is he saying... Uh, I, I told God this trial is too much for you. Instead, he's saying, I know you're facing the trial. Rejoice. I know you're facing that. Have joy. Have hope. And then I want to end off this morning, and I, I told you I, I'd been resisting the urge to do application because I think we need to not just have a message that you can go home and what did it mean for me, but actually understand where we're going to go in the series, I want to just speak briefly about reading and understanding the book. So as you start to read 
Philippians, and I'm encouraging you to do that over and over and over again in the next few weeks as we journey through it as a community. I want us to just ask questions around how do we read and understand the way that Paul actually wrote this letter. And unlike his, uh, most, most of his other letters, so Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians and his other letters, most of them develop just a single theme, kind of unpack it all the way through the book. Whereas Philippians is quite unique and that it actually revolves around chapter 2. So if you go to chapter 2 and you look at verse 3 to 11, verse, I think it's verse 5 to 11 is actually a poem or a hymn. So the way it's written in the original, in the original, what would the language have been? JB, help me here. Thank you. The way it's written in the original Greek is actually as a hymn or a poem. And so that, but that, that poem is about Christ and it's the most beautiful nutshell, of the gospel in a nutshell. It's absolutely stunning and we'll read it together in a moment. But what he's done is he's taken that as like the centerpiece of this book in Philippians, and then all his other thoughts are, are kind of plugged into that middle centerpiece. And there's a whole bunch of thoughts that, he's, that he just plugs in. And it's so beautiful. Let's, let's actually read it together. So we're going to go from verse 3, because it shows us what we meant to do as well as what Jesus has done. So verse 3 says, <laughs> if you want to take something from today, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a pretty substantial ask, Paul. And then he goes on to say how and why we can do that. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here comes the poem. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not just dying, even dying in, hu- in absolute humbleness on a cross and humiliation. Therefore, because of that, that's what the there is therefore. When you see therefore, you've got to ask, what is the there therefore? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is called the Messiah's poem, commonly by theologians. It's beautiful. The Messiah's poem. But I want, to, I want to highlight for you quickly in that poem, the entire story of Jesus is in that poem. So when it starts off in verse 5 and says, have this mind among yourselves about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. What's that speaking about in terms of the gospel? Incarnation. That God became flesh. Didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but came down. So that's the first part, it's incarnation. And then it speaks about his life. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so we see his incarnation. Then we see the story of just a brief summary of Christ's life. Then we see Christ's death on the cross. And then it says, and being found, no, go down. Therefore God has highly exalted him, the resurrection. So you've got the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and then finally you see his exaltation. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this, this piece in Philippians chapter 2 is actually a poem reflecting on the life of Jesus. It's the story in a nutshell of the, the, the Jesus' story. And it's the critical point of this, this book. Everything else, like I said, is built around it. And then in the weeks to come, we'll look at how that poem draws so heavily from Old Testament. It's not just something that Paul, that Paul kind of wrote. It's an Old Testament drawing in from all sorts of different sources. I mean, just one for you to consider. When you think about this, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Who did consider equality with God something to be grasped for? Anyone? Anything spring to mind? Who, who considered equality with God? Satan, for a start. Why was Satan thrown out of heaven? Because he tried to usurp God. He wanted equality with God. And then which of our ancestors? Adam. Isn't that what the devil says? He comes to them and he says, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want equality with God? And so here, there's a direct link to the Old Testament story of Adam and the breakdown and where all of this whole nonsense started is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped for. He did what Adam couldn't do, where Adam couldn't resist. Christ does it beautifully. And so we're going to look at all these Old Testament references in this poem as well. But the reason that it's so powerful to understand this is that we have got to understand that the instructions, the rebukes, the encouragements, everything that we're going to find as we read the book of Philippians, Paul the whole way is pointing to Jesus and saying, because he did it, you do it. Nowhere in this book are we reading, this is how you get to salvation. This is how you earn your salvation. This is how you justify yourself. Nothing is based on that. Every single thing Paul is pointing back and saying we do it because, look at, he wasn't saying look at chapter 2 because it wasn't in chapters then. But because of this poem, because of Jesus, because of his life, because of his actual life and history and his death and the fact that it happened. That's why we do. That's why we respond. So friends, are you struggling with difficult circumstances? I mean, Bates, Bates threw it out, but we, we just assume happy Mother's Day. But it's, it's not a happy day for many people. It's a really hard day for a lot of you. Are you struggling with all sorts of different things going on in our life? Prepare to be encouraged as we go through this book. Not in a, not in a kind of Pinterest way, in a, like a little quick fix, put a plaster on it kind of way, but in a deep, deep way. Paul is going is to show us how Christ suffered more than we ever could, how he probably suffered more, Paul suffered more than we're ever going to suffer in our lives, and yet he still finds deep joy deep satisfaction and ends with the glorious verse in, in chapter 4 where he says, says in all things whether with much or with little I've found to be content 
It's an, it's an incredible thing when you, get, when you start like the helicopter view and you see Philippians and what's going on in these guys' lives. Prepare to be deeply challenged. Deeply challenged around our own comforts, around our own lives and the way we live them. This book is going to give us new perspectives if we all let it. Prepare to see Jesus Christ in a fresh way, in a new way. Some of us are, are blasé to the gospel. This comes and helps us shine a fresh lens on the gospel. This is the book of Philippians that we're going to be engaging with. And so I'm done except for one thing. I started off by saying that we want to use these moments increasingly. We want to preach like this a lot more, going through books of the Bible, teaching us how to read it ourselves. So I want to lay out a gauntlet for you for the next weeks. I want to, I want to urge you. I want to, if I could, command you. I want to beg you. I want to entreat you, whatever word, fill in the gap. And I want to just give you some helpful handles on how to read Philippians in your own personal time to get the most out of this series. I want to encourage you to read the book again and again and again. Immerse yourself in the text of Philippians. It's only four chapters long, so I want to ask you to, to read a few times from start to finish. It's a good practice. When you're doing Isaiah, it's tough because it's like going to take you two days. But when you're in Philippians and it's just four chapters, it's very easy. It's going to take you half an hour. Don't worry about all the bits you don't understand and all of that. Just start in verse, chapter 1, verse 1 and go right through to chapter 4, verse whatever it is. And do that a couple of times so you get like an overview of the book of Philippians. I want to ask you to commit with me to committing a section to heart. That piece that I read, chapter 2, verse 3 to 11, it's not that tough. I want to ask that by the end of this series, this is not a, you, you can do this if you want to, but I'm, I'm going to do it and I'm encouraging you to join me. Why don't we learn that section by heart? It's a beautiful look in on the gospel. I encourage you to read in lots of different translations. So grab a few translations, even if you think your wife's one is heretical, take it off the shelf. Just look with fresh eyes. I read this number of times this last week through the message. It's beautiful. I know it's like, ooh, the jitters. Stop that. It's a good translation. It, it opens your eyes to see some stuff. Don't base your whole theology on one word in it, sure. But just go and get a, an overview of the book. It's beautifully written by Eugene Peterson. Read in the context of the New Testament. I'm just throwing out a whole bunch of different stuff. But Act 16, like I was doing this morning. Read in the context of the New Testament. Go and see where Paul was. What was going on in his life. Put yourself in the text. Imagine that you are there. Imagine that you're sitting in Lydia's, Lydia's room. And this letter is being read for the first time. How do you feel as the, as the prominent businesswoman? How do you feel as the jailer who was saved six years ago? How do you, how do you feel as the demon-possessed woman whose life has been completely altered? How do you feel as these people in the room? And then read it prayerfully and slowly. So do, do it all in one sitting and then go in and look at the details. There's lots of resources to help you. We're going to be doing that week on week as we go through it. Asking God to speak to you both about what it meant to those believers as well as what it means to us today. I find when I speak to people about their Bible reading habits, most of us are jumping to that all the time. What does it mean to me? How does this apply into my life? And that's okay. It is an important part of what scripture is. But we also want to ask, what does this mean to people? Who, how are they hearing it? People who are actually there. What is their cultural lens helping them see? And then I want to encourage you, if you aren't in a life group, get stuck into a life group. We're going to be looking at some 
stuff in more detail. We're going to ask questions from the Sunday. Some groups have come back to me saying they want to actually go into parts we aren't covering on the Sunday. So if we don't cover it on the Sunday, they'll do some of those bits in their life group. And so we can get stuck in there. All right, I'm done. Can we pray together and take communion? Father, thank you for your word, which speaks through thousands of years to us today. Thank you, God, that as we come with our stuff and our trials and our issues, that it's a great reminder that we were not the first ones with them, but that it's been there for centuries, God, and that we can draw huge courage from men and women and families, God, that have gone through exactly these same things and far worse than what we are ever, ever going to experience and yet can still point to you and have a whole book with a theme on joy. It's unbelievable, God. If I think if I'd written Philippians and I'd sat down to write a book on joy, whether I would have made it full of suffering, Lord, it's a, it's a beautiful testament to you and what you do in men and women's hearts and in their lives. Father, we look to you to expound this book for us in the next weeks. We ask you in our personal times to come and deeply move upon us, Lord. Show us things we've never seen. Let us see links to other pieces of scripture, Father. Come and encourage us who are weary. Come and guide us who need perspective, God, who need new perspective. There's so much in here and we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and bring change in our lives. In your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.